But this time I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. I knew there was a lot happening today, and somewhat significant in the sense that this would be my last sermon and a baptism. And so I prayed, Lord, give me a passage. This was the passage. It may seem a little odd, but I pray, as I, as I studied it, I got excited. We'll see what God has to say to us today. Let us read then the first 13 verses, Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is God's word. Well, I'm going to do something a little dangerous. I'm going to tell a story about people who are here uh, without clearing it first. I think I'm okay. There might be a little healthy ribbing afterwards. But early on, you see, in my marriage, uh, Elizabeth and I went with her family to attend a wedding, her cousin Dave. And this ceremony was a, a decent drive away, say about 90 minutes. And I think we left with about two hours uh, ahead of time to give us plenty of cushion. But, you know, there were some difficulties along the way. We were, we were in a caravan and we were going pretty slow. And, and then I think we ran into some construction. We might have taken a wrong turn. As we're driving, I'm looking at the clock and all of a sudden 30 minutes doesn't look all that comfortable anymore. And then we try to you know, make some crazy turns trying to go a faster way and all the while the clock is ticking down and it's, it's becoming clear we're, we're going to be going right to the wire. And, and I am stressed and now doubly so because I'm driving mostly dressed. Not all dressed, mostly dressed. After all, we were going to have a good half hour before the wedding, so I have my dress shirt and tie on a hanger. I think I'm wearing my sneakers. You know, why, why put a little extra wear and tear on your dress clothes and they'll be wrinkled when you come up? Well, we pull up ten minutes late. It's a small wedding, small enough that everyone waited for us. You know, we were just late enough that they could wait, but uh, not so late that they started. And the father and the groom, he, he greeted us with a truly generous smile. And, uh, you know, I, I went downstairs and threw my stuff on and we, we shuffled in. And the wedding was fine. It was a beautiful ceremony, one that honored Jesus. It was a wonderful day, despite us being a little bit late. Well, maybe you've experienced something like that. Being late for something important. 
It's, all, it's always embarrassing. I mean, it should be, because after all, it's important. You, you clear your schedule and you set aside your priorities for what's important. Now, sometimes you are late, and it's unavoidable. There's a flat tire, there's, there's traffic. But the times where you are late due to carelessness or negligence, well, we all just know there's something wrong with that, isn't there? Well, Jesus tells us this story. It's a parable about people who come late to the party. And the reason that they, is because they failed to prepare for the occasion. And the story tells you there are two types of people in the world. There's the foolish and the wise. And you can tell between folly and wisdom by the way that you prepare your life to meet Jesus. Here's the theme of the sermon, God's message today for you. The wedding is coming. Are you ready? The wedding is coming. Are you ready? Well, let's explore this parable a little bit. What, what is a parable? It's a bit of an alternative, an alternate reality story that forces you to think a little differently. Right? A parable takes everyday elements of life and uses them to tell a story, but then you can bend reality sometimes to make a specific point. Parables are a little bit like jokes in the sense that they often shock you. They surprise you. They should make you examine life from a different angle. They can wake you up to the truth. So let's explore this parable that Jesus tells, and I'll fill in some of the historical details, and then we'll talk about what it means and why it matters. Well, this is right at the face of it. It's a wedding story uh, with a celebration with all of its excitement. That's universally understandable. Weddings are always special events. They were even bigger back then. Right? There was lots of feasting. They could go on for days. A whole week of a party. A whole village might be involved. And this is when people might be going hungry day to day. This was a big thing. Well, in this wedding, there's this bridegroom. And most likely what's happening is that the bridegroom is going to meet the bride. And the bride would be living at the parents' house, and so he would go to the house and stay there with the parents until evening. And then, at that point, he would escort her back to their new home, wherever they would be living, and the celebration would begin. And along the way, they would be met by an escort party. And this would include young, unmarried women, who here are called uh, virgins. These are the ten virgins. I'm just going to call them bridesmaids. It's not exactly what we would use for the term bridesmaids, but I think it makes more sense to us today. Uh, virgin, Jesus really just means young woman. Back at that time, any young unmarried person was by definition a virgin. And so these young women, these bridesmaids, would be the friends of the bride, and they would take part in the procession. And each of them had a lamp. And we don't know exactly what kind of lamp it was. It ran on oil. I don't know if you ever did experiments, kids, when you were in school. I know I did, homeschooling. We, we got like a base and a wick, and we put some kind of oil or fat in it. You could lick it, and it light it, and it would kind of give this smoldering light. I remember doing that with my mom for homeschooling. So there was, there was this, this oil, and they would, this lamp would be considered part of the wedding, I don't know, apparel. It would be part of the uniform. If you didn't have a lamp when you came out to meet the, the bridegroom, you would be considered a wedding crasher, because clearly you weren't part of the party. So imagine all the people alongside the route waiting to join the party. Everyone's so excited. They can't wait to escort the new bride and groom to their home and begin the party. But as it so happens, the bridegroom's delayed. And it may have had something to do with the bride's parents. 
In some cases, it was thought that the parents showed honor to the bride by delaying the groom at her house. We don't know why. Maybe it was them instructing them how to treat their daughter. Perhaps it was a ritual way of dragging out the last few minutes of your time under our roof. Well, it may be in this story that the parents decided to greatly honor their daughter. And so they were there for quite some time. And so the bridesmaids waiting along the way get drowsy. And there's fall asleep. And there's, there's nothing wrong with this in this story about them falling asleep. That was, that's the natural reaction. After all, they are young girls. And their lamps go out. Now, at some point in the night, though, the bride and groom come, or at least the bridegroom, as Jesus says, is sighted, and everyone, everything springs to life. And Jesus tells this part of the story in vivid color. A cry rang out. There's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And there's all this great excitement as the girls, they shake themselves from their drowsy slumber and you can see them, they're, they're adjusting their hair and smoothing out their, their dress and, and they're fixing up their lamps and they're relighting them. But here's the problem. There's now not enough oil in the lamps and only half brought more. You can imagine the horror of the foolish girls as they're fixing their lamps and they start to sputter and they have no more oil to put in them. Without their lamps, they can't join the party. So they ask the wise girls, well, give us some. But these wise girls know that they they only have enough for themselves. And so they say, go out and buy your own, which was probably realistic because if the whole town was abuzz, it's realistic to think that you could find oil somewhere else. So those five girls leave. And Jesus tells the story this way. As they are going to buy oil, the bridegroom comes. It's a clean mess. The wise bridesmaids join the party and enjoy the feast. But when they reach the house, the door is shut. And the foolish bridesmaids are left out. The end. So that's the parable. What does it mean? Well, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven that has to do with God's rule here on earth, his kingly dominion. And the bridegroom represents Jesus. In the Old Testament, God was portrayed often as the tender husband of his people. You may have heard that in the call to worship. The Lord was Israel's husband. Jesus is not shy about talking about himself as the bridegroom multiple times in his ministry, which is a bold and astounding claim when you think about what he's saying there. Well, the bridesmaids are his followers. They are the people who are waiting for his return. And on the outside, they all look the same. They all have the same purpose, they all have the same dress, the same torches. You can't tell them apart. And isn't that how we look today? We come to church, we we sit down, we do the same things, we have the same purposes, we we give money, we invest our time. If, if If you grew up in this church, you've been baptized, you have the promise of God's grace to you, if you believe. And that way, that's the connection, that you and I are a lot like these bridesmaids. We all look a lot alike as we're waiting for Jesus. Well, this whole parable comes down to a question of oil. Let's talk about the oil because that is the tipping point. It's the crux of the parable. This oil is what distinguishes the foolish bridesmaids from the wise. What's so important about it? It's probably important to be careful to say what it's not and to overinterpret the, the oil. Some people have tried to narrow it down to a specific thing. Well, the oil is grace. The, the oil is the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not the point, and you can't share those things either, right? The, the, the wise 
are asked to share what they have. No, the oil is not a commodity in your hand. The oil is the commitment of your heart towards Jesus. It's not, it's not a commodity in your hand. It's the commitment of your heart. And this is where Jesus starts to bend reality of the parable to make a point. And you can do that. It's a parable. But the oil stands for the fact that these five wise bridesmaids were prepared. They knew the bridegroom was coming. They knew the wedding was going to be amazing. And so they acted accordingly. Think about what it means when you are prepared, truly prepared for something. When, when something is really, really important to you, you prepare in a way that involves your whole person, right? You think about it. You, 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 you've done your research. You've examined the pros and cons of all the different options. You've, you've found out what's the best course of action. And, and then you invest your time and resources to carry it out. That involves your, your mind, your time, your, your resources, your dreams. Right? Whether it's preparing for a long-awaited vacation or, or a wedding or a retirement. You think about all these things. Your whole person is in play. And that, that is because preparation shows your priorities. Preparation shows your priorities. The way you prepare points to what is most important in your life. That's just how we work. Jesus says how you prepare for the bridegroom determines how he will receive you. If you prepare to meet him, then, then he welcomes you into this wedding bliss. He's, he's really only looking at one facet of the new heavens and the new earth, but this stands for the final reality. But not all will receive or experience the joy of this wedding. The foolish bridesmaids are shut out. This may again bend reality. It's, it's very possible that in that culture the groom would have taken them in if they were late just like our generous uncle did when we were late for the wedding. But, but Jesus is making a point to show the utter tragedy in their lives. When the oil runs out, it becomes plain that they were unprepared. They looked the part on the outside, but their lives showed otherwise. And they, they, they frantically scrambled to, to make up for lost time, but at that point, it's too late. And, and, and when they knock on the door, Jesus says, I do not know you. Jesus, in his teaching, is very clear that the only way you can experience eternal life is through a relationship with him as your Lord. And when he says, I do not know you, that's deadly serious. To be cast out of the wedding is a picture of separation from God, eternal punishment in hell. The wedding's coming. Are you ready? Well, how can you be ready? I want us to look at two ways to be foolish and then how to be wise. There are at least two ways from this parable to be foolish. To, that is to live a life unprepared for eternity with Jesus. And the first is to think that you are good enough for God. I'm good enough for God. You know, you're, you are a morally upright, responsible, respectable person. You're a great neighbor. You, you think that your performance in your life is good enough so that when you die, God will simply look at you and accept you because of what you've done. A very simple question helps to get to the heart of this. If you were to die tonight and stand before God as judge, and he said to you, why should I let you into my wedding feast, into my heaven, how would you respond? Well, I've heard people say, well, I'm a good person. I've got a lot of, done a lot of kind things in my life. I haven't murdered anyone. I'm not Hitler. I'm nice to puppies. Right? I'm, I'm an all-around good person. 
that's how you answer the question before standing before God is judged. Examine your heart, I plead with you. It might be insulting to you. You might say, what do you mean I'm being pleased? I've done all these good things. The Bible says that you can be very smart and very accomplished and still be tragically unprepared. I'm a good person. I've done a lot of good things. I've never killed anyone. What's the tragic word there? I. If your eternal preparation begins with you, you are lost. The whole message of the Bible is you cannot, I cannot, work our way to God. His perfect and good and His right standard would crush you. You can't save yourself. You need another. You may remember the story of Paul and Silas when they are preaching about this wonderful good news of Jesus in the town of Philippi. They're beaten and, and they are thrown in jail. And in the midst of their pain, they're singing praises to God. And at midnight, there's an earthquake and their chains are thrown off. And the jailer comes in ready to kill himself because in that deal was as a jailer, if you lose anyone, if they escape, you die. So he's about to take his life and Paul says, stop, we're all here. And trembling, he says to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what does Paul say? Well, you know, go out and be a good person. As long as your good outweighs your bad, you know, God, God will, God will, uh, you'll be okay. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household must bow the knee, accept Jesus as king, Take his righteousness, which he's lived for you. There is no hope that you are just good enough for God. But there's another way to be foolish, and that's belief without evidence. You, know, you can claim to believe in Jesus, but if you're honest, your life is unchanged. You hear the story of Paul and Silas, and you know it, you've heard it many times, and you say, oh yeah, I did that when I was five. Next. So there's no difference in the way that you live. You, you may have grown up in the church. You may have even been baptized on this platform. You may have confessed your faith here. You can talk churchy talk. You can put on a mask, and I don't mean a COVID mask. You can put on a front and fool everyone else and maybe even yourself. But Jesus doesn't excite you. And there's no change that's come from truly knowing him. You come to church either because you have to, or you're comfortable here, or because of your friends, some good things, but missing the point. To use the language of the parable, if, if you want to go to the wedding at all, it's not for the groom, it's for the food. Right? I want to stop and talk to the children for just a moment. Baptism is also often given to children as a sign of God's grace. Kids, teens... Tommy, Rachel, when you're old enough to listen to this, does Jesus make a difference in your life? If someone could follow you around in your shadow for a week and watch the way you live, could they say, I can tell you're a Christian. You live in a different way, and it seems like you do it because you love Jesus. Does that sound like you at all, kids? Not that you're perfect. You all sin. We all sin. We need grace. Not because you don't have doubts. You may. And parents, I hope that you're comfortable talking to your kids about their doubts. But what it does mean is that you love Jesus. You received his grace. And you want to grow up and live for him. Whatever that looks like. It's very different for each person. 
Kids, do you have your parents' faith or your own? Have you trusted in him or are you just putting a good front on the outside? That's a question only you can answer. Speaking to everyone, if you call yourself a Christian but have no evidence for it, please realize that you are in a dangerous place. It may be that you are living a foolish life, unprepared to meet Jesus. Well, there are two ways to be foolish. You can be good enough for God, believe you're good enough for God, or believe without evidence in your life. Well, how can you be wise? Well, we need to realize there's the warnings here, which we've talked about, but there's also an invitation. Don't be like these foolish bridesmaids. Be wise. And so how do I live wisely? How do I prepare? Well, you prepare by living for the bridegroom. And here's what I mean by that. Certainly the basics of of claiming him as Lord and, and, and by grace growing in a life of love and obedience to him. But that will change not just what you do, but how you think and act about this life and your motivations. See, if you understand who Jesus is as the bridegroom, this is a wonderful thing. This wedding feast that we're waiting for has been the focus of God's plan from all eternity. You were made for this purpose, to soak in and bask in the glory of this groom and to see him in his beauty and his power and his splendor and for one day for him to look at you and see you and say, I know you. I love you. You are mine. That is what completes you. I want to give you an illustration from the Barshingers' lives right now. As you know, we are about to be split seven weeks from now. I'll be going on a deployment. Something sometimes we try not to think about, but the reality is coming. It's bittersweet. I can see the good that God will do in it, both in my life and Elizabeth and the children's and, and certainly the, the ministry opportunity. There's no way that I could be with soldiers like I will as a civilian pastor, right? I tell Sammy that I'm going away for a long time to help soldiers when they're sad and teach them about Jesus. It's a wonderful opportunity. And yet I'm going to miss my dear wife and my young children and my friends and my family and you, my dear church, terribly. Just thinking about that separation hurts. This is a time where everything is heightened, both the highs and the lows. And so this this weekend is a beautiful time where Elizabeth's family has been here earlier and they're here now and my family has come and they'll spend a couple days with us. It'll be the last time that maybe we're all together with me before I go. It's very beautiful, but there's already pangs of sadness there. Last night, uh, Elizabeth's mom gave Tommy and Rachel some some new clothes, some matching clothes for Sammy and Tommy. And that's great. And then I realized, I won't be here when they grow into them. I'm going to miss that. It hurts. And so it should. But I'll tell you what. Lord willing, uh, when I come back, the celebration and the joy will be all the greater Because of the separation. You know what? We as my family will be, we will be, we will be preparing like crazy 
for my return. And how will we be doing that? Well, Elizabeth, her preparation will be keeping the kids alive. If I come back and we have, you know, the kids are breathing and healthy and fairly well adjusted emotionally, that is a win, right? Um, that's what she will be doing. For me, I will be living my life as well as possible next year. Now, I want to be fully invested in my mission and my soldiers at Kuwait. But I also know that when I'm there for those nine, ten months, that's not my home. I'm not putting roots down there. I'm not staying there. I want to come back to my home here, more in love with Jesus, more mature, more capable. In a very real way, the way I live over in Kuwait for the next year will prepare me for when I come back to church for my family and ministry. That's how I see it. So I'm living well this next year, but I'm also yearning to come home. It doesn't take long. Three days a week before the homesickness really hits, especially when you realize I'm not, it's not going to be two weeks and done. This is going to be a long time. And from that point on, I am going to be yearning. We're going to be thinking. We're going to be imagining what, what it will be like when I return. And I can tell you that for me in Kuwait and Elizabeth on the home front, as the time grows closer to my return, the excitement will mount. It will get bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where my return will seem bigger than any event on the horizon. My Samuel will be telling you all, Daddy's coming home. Well, in a little way, my deployment can illustrate Jesus' return and how we view it. Christians, what makes you different from everyone else is that you are waiting for the return of your Savior Jesus. We experience eternal life now with the Spirit. It's wonderful. Jesus has given us joy and, and, and the Spirit, but it's bittersweet because you know the bridegroom has gone away and has not yet come back. And so today, you're waiting for His return. And everything in your life is moving towards that climax. Jesus says, when you are preparing, everything you do is striving, yearning, preparing for his return. In his first letter to the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul encourages the Christians to live in a way that was countercultural, radical, and that pleased the Lord. It was hard work. It was painful. It was dangerous at times. And after he does that, he encourages them with this promise in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The Apostle Paul says, if, if you die before Jesus comes, you will be raised and raised up first. And, and then if you are alive, you will be lifted up to meet him. In the ancient times, people will go out of the city to meet an important person and then escort them back in. And that word meet only comes three times in the New Testament. And one of the other times is the cry in this parable. The bridegroom is here. Come out to meet him. That's your hope. You're waiting for the bridegroom. And so this week, as you faithfully carry out a life of preparation, as you seek your Lord through His Word and prayer, as you sacrificially give of your time and your money, as you lay down your life 
for your spouse or a friend or, or you care for the need of someone else in the name of Jesus. Remember that you are doing that and in so preparing to meet the bridegroom. The wedding is coming. Are you ready? Let's pray. Our King Jesus, truly we have no other hope than you. And certainly you are our wonderful hope. Would you give us this week an awareness of the nearness of your return? You could come back at any moment. Would you give us a joy and an eagerness as we live each day for you in the present? We pray this in your powerful name. Amen.